This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And returning to join us after a long break is our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. I'm so excited to have you back, Joanna. What's a movie? What are TV shows? I forget. How was your time running that hotel on that island in Greece? Was it? Did you have fun? Was it a lot of singing? Um, you should see my tan. My hair is now curly and blonde, even though it never was before. Uh, it was pretty amazing. Pierce Brosnan and I will be living happily ever after. Thank you. Is it a nightly duet with Meryl Streep's ghost, or, or how does that work? No, it's once a week to keep it really special. Oh, I see. You know? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the tourists love it, right? <laughs> it's the best. It's the best attraction on the island. If you were a listener to all of our Vanity Fair podcasts, and you've heard plenty of Richard and Joanna both because the Sharp Objects season has been going on uh, tremendously on Still Watching, um, which I guess this this week is the finale, right? So it'll be uh, the end of Sharp Objects? Yeah, end of an era. No more. Oh, my no God. More. Not the end of Still Watching. Not the end of Still no, Watching, no. for sure. But no, no more hog heats. No more. <laughs> no more Tupac no remixes. More Tupac. <laughs> I'll have to look forward to the next iteration. Frankly, no more pretending that I don't know the end of something. <laughs> You know, because like in the individual episodes before we get to the spoiler section, it's just like, oh, gee, I wonder what this could mean. And it's like, I know. Joe and I have both read the book. We both know what's happening. I look forward to the full disclosure finale episode where you guys are like, here's what we've been hiding from you this whole time. So let's talk about movies because it is the end of summer and we are right on the verge of festival season as we keep talking about and as evidenced by a bunch of the trailers and previews that are coming out right now. And there's also some good stuff in theaters, uh, some smaller things that we will get to talking about. And we're also planning to kind of look back at the summer that was from the giant blockbusters to the indie successes to Mr. Rogers being a big box office draw this year. There's uh, a lot to catch up on. Um, but real quick, just in our uh, kind of beginning, starting the episode with trailers tradition, I want to talk about the trailer for the Outlaw King or just Outlaw King. Uh, that dropped yesterday. It's from Netflix. It's going to be the opening night film in Toronto. And uh, Joanna, as someone who recently shared a photo of Chris Pine wearing a caftan, I feel like uh, you might be the person to talk about what what this tells us about Chris Pine and his possible rising Chris status. Uh, well, I'm a little worried about it, to be honest with you. And I was glad to... We were, <laughs> we were in a, we were in a little uh, Hollywood meeting yesterday, Vanity Fair Hollywood meeting, and I was glad to hear that I wasn't the only one who noticed that Chris Pine barely speaks in the trailer. And the and the reason I noticed that is, you know, this is, this is a obviously a Scottish period piece he plays robert the bruce like you know this this very important historical figure who you might remember from the film braveheart um and i was waiting i was on tenterhooks the whole trailer being like what does chris pine's scottish accent sound like and they like keep you in suspense and you hear katie rich's favorite uh game of thrones actor stephen delane you hear tony kern you hear all these other people and then you finally hear chris pine you just hear like a few clipped little phrases and i'm like i think they're hiding a bad accent and like i i personally get really distracted by a bad accent um and so other people don't care as much but like i'm the person who still like sort of winces when peter dinklage talks on game of thrones so you know it's a i think that's like it could be bad news for our friend chris though he looks great and i love him and i think he can carry it dramatically uh i'm a little worried about this particular stumbling block yeah, I did a little research on Robert the Bruce 
Um, Joanna, I'm not going to attempt the burr, the Scottish burr. I just thought I would show people what a bad Scottish accent sounds like before I started making fun of Chris Pine's bad Well, accent. don't denigrate your work as the film's dialect coach. I know you you worked really hard at that, so don't <laughs> don't tell yourself short. Because I was a little um, put off by the fact that Florence Pugh, who is this great actress who kind of burst onto the scene uh, last year, um, or was it two years ago, uh, is playing what looks to be his wife. And I was like, oh, she's very young. But in fact, that is uh, accurate to uh, Robert the Bruce's life as far as people are aware of it, that he had a wife who was significantly younger than him. I believe the age difference between her and Pine is 15 years, and I actually think it was more for the real Robert the Bruce. So that was a kind of one thing that I initially stuck out to me uh, as like a kind of alarm bell in the trailer. And then the other alarm bell, which was the accent, kind of doesn't really arrive. I mean, you hear just a little bit of it, like you said, Joanna. I'm still cautiously optimistic about it. So yeah, this is a reunion between him and David McKenzie, who directed him in Hell or High Water, and that movie got a Best Picture nomination, even though it didn't uh, do much for Chris Pine himself. I mean, I think he's McKenzie has enough of a track record, though not necessarily with historic Scottish epics, that I feel like there's some reason for faith in this. The opening night film Toronto can sometimes be good and sometimes be bad. It's really hard to tell um, year to year. Um, so it's hard to learn much from that. But I, as a as a fan of Chris Pine, as someone who thought like he really stood out in Wonder Woman, I want to give him the chance to put on the chainmail and uh, run around on a Scottish moor. Um, and then hopefully also wear the caftan that uh, you shared, Joanna, from that vacation photo, which, God love him, I hope he's having a great vacation. I do think it is funny that this impulse in um, certain direct, well, okay, st- straight male directors and straight male actors to, like, once they get a little bit of traction, they're like, all right, I'm going to be, like, my tough period piece, like, you know, like, this is not the most, like, original idea for a movie. It's like, okay, we've seen, I mean, we've all, we've seen Braveheart, like, whatever, it's a little disappointing, actually, in a way, because I think that Hell or High Water was a really interesting collaboration between these two people. Uh, that like I'm uh, that, that they that they went this kind of more traditional route, I think, is is um, putting me off a bit. But uh, again, I remain optimistic. Katie, you and I will be at the, I believe, first screening of it uh, at Toronto. Yeah, history unfolding before our oh, eyes in just boy. two weeks. So we'll have more to say on it. But I, again, Chris Chainmail Mud. I'm I'm not mad about that aspect. And then the movie will be on Netflix on November 9th. So uh, it's gonna it's an interesting award season where Netflix has some major players in, in ways they haven't in years past. And then the movies will be available to everyone pretty quickly. It's interesting. We were talking about this in a, also in a meeting yesterday. We were talking about this uh, film as as a return for Dave McKenzie, Heller High Water director, and sort of a return for like Barry Jenkins has another project this year. Like sort of this, the, all the people who were in the Oscar conversation two years ago are back with their next project. Sort of the thesis. But what's funny is that like I still to this day, and I don't know why, think of Heller High Water as a Taylor Sheridan film. Taylor Sheridan was a screenwriter. Yeah, you know that guy has a real staying power as a screenwriter. It's impressive. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah, and he's like, you know, he he went on to write and direct Wind River, which I actually I did quite like, wind up liking. I watched it at home, but I quite liked it. Like, you know, he he wrote Sicario and so I think whatever it was that was in Hell or High Water, I don't want to bury David McKenzie, but I think a lot of it had to do with Taylor Sheridan, who is obviously like not at all interested in Scottish lairds and so is not writing this particular uh project. So like it doesn't feel like I was like, well, why doesn't this feel at all like Hell or High Water? And I'm like, oh, because I mean, not just because it's in Scotland, but because Taylor Sheridan, who I think is the distinctive reason why that film stood out, uh, is not a part of it. So yeah, uh, and, and I should mention that David McKenzie is himself a Scotsman. So th- that makes more sense. But yeah, like Taylor Sheridan is this kind of cowboy poet who is now directing his own movies and doesn't need, you know, uh, outside help, I guess. You're right, Joanna, that the Hell or High Water pretty much had the, the more of the Sheridan stamp on it than the McKenzie stamp. One more thing we should say is that I think we all three of us enjoyed Startup, which was uh, David McKenzie's earlier feature. And also I, I like Young Adam, which is a much earlier feature he did. So it's not like Dave McKenzie was like a nobody who directed Hell or High Water. But like, I don't, I'm, I'm curious because I have a hard time drawing a line that connects startup to Hell or High Water to what we saw of Outlaw King. So I don't know that I have a sense of like what it is David McKenzie himself can do. Our friends of the podcast, David Sims and Griffin Newman, have a podcast called Blank Check where they kind of go through directors' oeuvres and kind of try to identify the moment when they got the sort of, you know, quote unquote, blank check to direct whatever they wanted. And Hell or High Water for McKenzie may have been that movie. I mean, it did well. It got nominated for a bunch of Oscars. He's obviously been working for a long time and, 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 and critically praised and, you know, all that. So it's interesting to see that when he was finally given what one might call a bigger budget, 
that he went this more traditional route, but like maybe that's safer or maybe it's just frankly, as a Scots, Scottish person, it was just what appealed to him. To talk about movies we haven't seen yet for one more time, uh, I wanted to point to this photo that we debuted on VF.com yesterday of uh, Nicole Kidman in the Karan Kusama movie Destroyer, which is also going to be at Toronto and then opens on December 25th. I talked to Karan Kusama and her uh, husband, who is a film screenwriter, uh, on the phone and just kind of got a sense of what the movie is going to be. I mean, I, when I heard that we were going to be debuting a photo of Nicole Kidman in the movie, I was intrigued and then saw the photo and kind of couldn't believe the extent to which it was a transformation uh, because Nicole Kidman has transformed herself. She won an Oscar for playing Virginia Woolf with that famous prosthetic nose, but she hasn't done the kind of like full on, like I think of this as the Charlize Theron move where you like truly physically transform yourself for a role. And I thought the the photo itself was really intriguing. Did it, did it strike you guys as much as it struck me? Oh yeah, very much so. I mean, I, you know, I, Nicole Kidman is for a huge name movie star, like is someone who always picks interesting things and like goes interesting places. And yeah, the photo is striking. And the movie itself, I'd been kind of aware of it previous to the photo because, you know, it's Karen Kusama who directed it, who, you know, did the invitation, um, back in 2015. And that was this great, grim, really well, well constructed thriller. And, and, and then, you know, so Kusama got this bigger project to work on, um, with, you know. And that was her first movie in like six years because she had directed Jennifer's Body, um, which was interesting, but like not a huge success. And then she'd been directing a lot of television since then. So it was seen as a comeback of sorts. Right. Exactly. And, and, um, you know, it's always interesting to see what people do with the project after the comeback, you know. Uh, and so I'm just curious about, and, and, you know, the thing is, it's, it's going to, well, I mean, it's not officially until next week, but like we're pretty sure it's world premiering at Telluride, which is like a pretty, kind of prestige and quite literally lofty place to debut a movie from a genre filmmaker. You know, Kusama's great, but she's been making, you know, sort of thrillers or sci-fi or horror or whatever. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm infinitely curious. And that photo only made me more. And they're describing it as a uh, as a kind of a, a character study hidden within a cop thriller. And it's kind of, uh, you know, it's a story about a woman who is infiltrating a criminal gang. And then years later, she's kind of haunted by what she experienced there and then has to dive back in and kind of return to the ghost of her past. And it's a it's a pretty classic cop story. But I think the difference is that you've got it's about a woman. It's got Nicole Kidman in the lead. And then you've got Karen Kusama, who has really proven her muscle as a filmmaker, um, maybe having a chance, like you're saying, Richard, to like really uh, spread her wings after this comeback film, The Invitation. The season of Top of the Lake got decidedly mixed reviews. But that was another role that I really feel like Nicole Kidman, I mean, she wasn't exactly like as, as gaunt and weathered as she is in this photo, but she, it was, it was quite a transformation. She, I think she had like, she had a great wig, she had a great right? wig. Her, her skin was a little modeled. It was like more freckled than modeled. And then like she had different teeth in. So she, she was like sort of doing dabbling in that, uh, the hours sort of transformation thing. And it was, it was a really good role for her. It was a small role and a really good role for her. And I really liked that, uh, performance from her. But what's so funny, you, it's funny you bring up Charlize Theron because I was watching, I had, I missed Tully when it was in theaters and I watched it, um, at home the other day and, um, I realized that there's something that Charlize Theron does to sort of uh, dress herself down, which has to do with her skin. It's like a really modeled um, thing that she does in both Tully and and Monster. And I realized how how often we do not see, I don't know, uneven skin tone in a film and how like that alone, which we see every day in real life, uh, can look a little alarming and uh you know nicole kimmon is definitely rocking some uneven skin tone here but it's i don't know it's just it's fascinating like that reaction we have to an actor or actress sort of looking like a real human it's you know Something that, um, that Karan Kazama talked about when I talked to her is like, she's a woman who has never put on sunscreen. Like, she's a cop who's out, out there every day in the sun and doesn't wear sunscreen. And that's just what happens when you have lived your life in that way. And it, you're right, Joanna. It's just something we don't see because we're looking at incredibly beautiful movie stars. And Nicole Kidman is an especially beautiful movie star. Um, so that's, that's it's striking just to see her like that. And can we also shout out the extent of the, the female directors that Nicole Kidman has been working with lately? She's on this crazy streak from um, The Beguiled and then Top of the Lake with Jane Campion and then uh, Big Little Lies Season 2 is Andrea Arnold and now this. Like, she's really racking them up. Yeah, I mean, she really should give some men a chance. I feel like she's being <laughs> deeply unfair. I mean, Baz Luhrmann's waiting for her call. So. <laughs> when she won um, the Emmy or Golden Globe or something for Big Little Lies, 
she said, this is such, you know, such a nice night. Like, I'm so happy. I'm working on a project that's taken me to some very dark places. And Destroyer was the project that she was filming at the time. Um, so she kind of did a little intriguing promo for it, uh, like a year ago. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be great. And, and I think that it's, you know, like her and a couple other actors, I feel like recently have really committed to working with female directors in a much more conscious, you know, like way. And, um, I, I think that's exciting, and and uh, you know I'm ready for a Karen Kusama Oscar campaign. Oh my god, yeah! Well, it's so cool that Big Little Lies season two is all Andrea Arnold, like the Jean-Marc Vallée, like you know, help build this franchise, and it's like, no, we're going to give this female-centric franchise. And I think you know the actresses has something to do with that anyway, but Andrea Arnold. Well, hooray. yeah, I mean, I think there's there's so much to be said. And hasn't said during the Me Too movement, but the sort of uh, idea of like putting your money where your mouth is and like really doing the work to and like these women who have this uh, stature in Hollywood, like a Nicole Kidman or a Reese Witherspoon, et cetera, et cetera. Like it feels like they do have they see this as the opportunity. They're like, oh, here's our chance. We can push for this because this is our moment to push for this. And uh, I think it really underlines the people who aren't doing that, who are maybe a little more talk than action, you know, so. Yeah, it's easy to imagine a story as a kind of movie that can't get made until someone like Nicole Kidman signs on. And she seems aware of that power she has to to push the project she cares about along. So good for all of them. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This message comes from Apple Card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then... Grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? What's the right amount of socializing for you? And how do you recharge? Maybe you thrive around people, or maybe you need more alone time. Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash LittleGoldMen today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash little gold men. So let's dive back into what's in theaters now briefly. Uh, Richard, I feel like for weeks we've been talking about you talking about The Wife, uh, which is the Glenn Close movie that I think premiered at Toronto last year and has been in theaters now. And I think and this happens every time Glenn Close does anything that's good because she is one of those actresses who famously has been Oscar nominated many times and has never won. Uh, so the idea is that maybe this could be her shot. Uh, is this her shot? It feels like it. I wrote a review and, and, I, and I mentioned in that that like for the first stretch of the film, like maybe the first third or ish she doesn't have a ton to do she's kind of a more passive role she is just the wife and she's sort of on jonathan price's arm who's this author who's just won the nobel prize and they travel to stockholm and she's reacting to things and she's in and close is amazing at doing that in a very subtle way um but as the film kind of builds towards its big climactic scene she gets more and more and then when that scene arrives it's just this like incredibly rich and rewarding bit of big kind of ang- angry forceful acting from Glenn Close uh, it feels almost theatrical I, I wrote in a review that I almost wanted to see it on stage so I hope it's enough to register I mean the movie is getting a pretty small rollout um you know I I, I think the, the the movie surrounding this great Glenn Close performance is just okay that has not uh you know sadly uh, affected uh, other best actress campaigns uh, in the past, you know, 
a lot's been written about that. I mean, she was nominated for Albert Nobbs, which was fine. Y- yes, that's exactly right. And that was, you know, and that was Glenn Close's only nomination since the 80s. She got five Oscar nominations within a very short period of time in the 1980s and then got nothing until 2011 for Albert Nobbs. And so now, seven years later, it'd be nice to see her back in. It would be her seventh nomination. Um, and she's one of those actresses who, you know, she's in her 70s now. She's getting up there. And it's like, let's not let that opportunity to give Glenn Close one of the best actresses who's been around in the past 30 plus years uh an oscar no this is this is what happens so often i i feel like it happens more with actresses i can't prove that but amy adams i think is this current decades example where she's also been nominated five times and there's becoming this concern is like do we just take her for granted do we think that she's good enough that we don't think about her needing to actually win um so hopefully it doesn't take amy adams this long and hopefully this is glenn close's uh time to come back and i should say to those you know who are like game of thrones fans or whatever that jonathan price as the husband is really great too you know he's a very like capable scene partner for her the movie is her movie you know as as it goes but but he does a good job so you know if anyone is just kind of in the mood for like a big kind of chewy piece of theatrical acting the wife is like a really i don't know it's a it's it's about serious stuff um but it's 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 fun too what about uh the brazil fans well, <laughs> they are, there's as many of them there's as no Game fans, of Thrones fans, I can't right? Help <laughs> uh, so there's another movie that's out in theaters now that has uh, at least one impressive uh, actress performance and maybe several. Um, and Joanna, you saw Support the Girls at South by Southwest. And I remember you vividly describing how like you ran into David Fear and he insisted that you go see and support the girls and you were thrilled with it. Um, so has it uh, months later? Are you still fond of this movie? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm even more fond of it months later. It was so great. This is like one of those festival stories I love because Neil Miller, uh, a film school and I was on the streets of Austin and David Fear comes running up and he's like, you know, I saw Support the Girls. I, I, you know, I missed it at Sundance. I saw it here. I really, really loved it. Uh, you know, and he was like, it's directed by um, Andrew Bowalski. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Who's this, you know, sort of famed mumblecore. Like he's often credited for starting the mumblecore movement with uh, this film Funny Haha, which I saw at a festival years and years and years ago. Um, but, uh, you know, um, David Fear uh, of Rolling Stone compared him to Jonathan Demi and he was like this is like a very like Demi kind of movie in that it's like a very uh like feels so honest working class movie and um you know the the premise is it's, it's set at a not a Hooters but like a sort of Hooters adjacent um like you know gir- girly bar restaurant um where they serve wings and play sports and the women wear short shorts as they serve their food and the it's definitely an ensemble piece but uh, like you know without without question the star is regina hall plays like the manager like a former waitress now manager she does not wear the short shorts she wears a sensible polo but like uh and it's it's uh it takes place over the course of one day and it's sort of just about these women the there are struggles in the bar there are struggles with the men who own the the place the struggles with the men who are customers in the place and their like sisterhood together and the things that they have to do you know in terms of like watching each other's kids or supporting each other through various things and the hard choices Regina Hall's character has to make. Um, some standouts uh, other than the great Regina Hall, who a lot of people, um, you know, took notice of in girls trip, but has been in a lot of great things. Uh, Haley Lou Richardson, who's just been on a tear of like sort of chameleonic performances. Uh, she was really, really great in Columbus. This is sort of like a quiet, shy, bookish girl. And she is just like this flirty cutie with like some depth but like she's just like irresistibly cute in this movie and i was just like i I like sat up and i was like who is she and then like i looked up her imdb page and it turns out i've said who is she in like five movies in a row so yeah she's great in edge of 17 she's great in split which is like not a movie it's like james mcavoy show but she really stands out in that too I think. yeah Haley richardson she's just like keep keep keeping your eye on her shana McHale, who plays this uh you know sort of regina hall second in command who's this like astonishingly tall, beautiful woman who like just has a lot of great strength and attitude. And I just like, you, you like love these women and you want to spend time with them. And I'm like, I want this to be a TV series so I can deal with them more, but uh, it's probably best as like a day in the life sort of slice of life thing. I don't know. Richard, what did you think of, of this film? I think it's great. I think, you know, um, I had been turned on to uh, 
Bugalski, the uh, the director, um, with his last feature, which was called Results, um, with Kobe Smulders and others, uh, and he's got this really offbeat tone. Um, the movie Support the Girls doesn't quite go where you think it's going to go. I don't know if it even goes anywhere. It's just this kind of ramble. Um, but it's just such a pleasant world to be in, uh, the way that he has crafted it and the, his, the actresses that he's worked with. Um, and I just think it's so exciting, um, to see Regina Hall get this role. She's, she's, she's been in this business for a long time. Um, she's been reliably good from everything from scary movie to the short lived law and order LA. Um, you know, she played a prosecutor on that. Like, I don't know. She's just like a, a, a really, um, capable and, resourceful actress and i and i think that like she's got you know good stuff coming up with with the hate you give and, and another show and another series and she's been on in episodes of insecure and of course she was so good in girls trip um which i think was like i was glad that tiffany haddish got so much attention for girls trip but like i think regina hall was really the kind of key of that movie um so it's nice to see her have the unqualified lead uh and and to do it so well uh, I intend to see support the girls soon. I uh, yeah, have not the had the chance. And I know I'm going to go support the girls by supporting the girls. I'm so curious, if, you know, like because Hooters has been in the news <laughs> recently because they're like rebranding because their their whole thing doesn't work in 2018. Out of style. And uh, I'm like, is this viral marketing for support the girls? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish I believed in the power of viral marketing to do that. Does the whole thing not work in 2018 because? Of the internet, like, I guess, I don't know, or, like, are just, like, younger men, like, millennial men or whatever, not, like, as interested in, like, that real-life experience. I don't know. It just, anyway, we don't have to get into why Hooters is failing, but it's just interesting to me. Well, yeah, I think think maybe that's something that you, like, A, do more in private these days, and B, uh, like, I don't know, in the, in the Me Too era, like... I I wouldn't go to a Hooters. I would never go. I've never been to a Hooters. Restaurant, I've, so. I've never been to a Hooters. I mean, well, the Katie, chain restaurants Toronto, are also going. right. I know there's one right in the middle of the whole Toronto Film Festival. So Should we'll have to we go, check go in and on support it. support the girls. <laughs> support the girls of your local Hooters? This actually transitions into the uh, the back half of the episode I want to talk about because with the wife and with support the girls out in theaters and you know Crazy Rich Asians still out there. It's been it's just nice to see movies that are worth seeing out in theaters at the end of August because I feel like often this becomes this truly dead zone. And if you look at the major studio releases for the next two weeks it's pretty rough like richard i won't necessarily make you talk about the happy time murders but i understand you didn't have a great experience going to see this weekend's widest release uh it's the worst movie i've seen in 2018 (laughs) well then don't go see the happy time murders but maybe go see support the girls anyway like do you do you guys feel like this is a special situation in which all of these like good smaller movies but movies are out there to see like is is 2018 kind of standing out in terms of what is out there for everybody yeah i mean i think that 2018 um now that we're more than halfway through, which is horrifying, um, it, it has been very reliable. You know, I'm writing a piece for the for the site that will be up at some point on Thursday of this week, maybe not when the, this episode posts, but just to kind of about how this summer in particular, like, with the exception of maybe The Meg, I just kind of liked everything. You know, like the big blockbusters, I mean, I loved Mission Impossible, but, but like Ocean's 8 was fun and I thought Jurassic World 2 was fun and you know it just the uh skyscraper was fun Infinity War Infinity War was 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 interesting uh, I liked Ant-Man 2 like uh, everything was kind of at this pleasant register and then supporting that were these really interesting independent films whether we're talking about The Rider or I guess that was more in the spring but like Hereditary you know Eighth grade. Eighth grade. Eighth grade, yeah. Like so it's just been a very like unexpectedly rich summer movie season. It's so interesting. I've I've felt uh a little differently than you, Richard, uh in terms of the blockbusters. Like usually I'm like sort of percolating around like a f- a fun fine time at the movies is something that I've like used for a lot of movies in 2018. So maybe that's the same thing as you're saying, like reliable, but I'm just sort of like, it's fine. Like, but I, I could take or leave skyscraper. I actually really did not like Jurassic world too but like um for the most part i agree with you i'm like yeah Ant man was a fun fine time at the movies that's fine nothing like blew my mind um it, you know nothing was like incredible but yeah you're right there that left room for all these like smaller films and i like you know we work in this 
business, we pursue these smaller films. We have the advantage of going to the festivals, hearing about the festival news. But I was really genuinely surprised to see the way in which films this summer, especially films like Eighth Grade or the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary or the Mr. Rogers documentary, like were reaching everyone. Um, that was like, and I, and like, once again, I can't tell if by everyone, I mean, even my circle of friends here in California, but like, it really did feel much more pervasive and much more like, word of mouth on eighth grade and word of mouth on, you know, these two documentaries, like that people are rushing to see in the dead of summer. Like that's, I don't know. It's kind of amazing. I mean, won't you be my neighbor has made $22 million, which is so crazy for a documentary. I mean, it's, it's about Mr. Rogers. Like there's kind of some built in brand recognition. Um, RBG has made $13 million. It has made just slightly less than mile 22 is like kind of a, uh, as a jump off point for that. And then eighth grade is right behind it with $11 million. And then three identical strangers is right there. It's made $10 million. And that three identical strangers isn't about a beloved pop culture figure. It's just this crazy story in a documentary. Um, and I think of myself as a slightly more, the judge of what everyone is, because I live in a smaller city, though, in a kind of liberal educated place where there's multiple art house Katie, theaters. Steal my of the people crown. I see. Yeah, that's is. true. I am. I am the populist. Okay. Now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so three identical strangers and RBG and, and what you be my neighbor have been playing for weeks at my art house. Like when I go to just my like really random uh, multiplex down the street, which is kind of poorly maintained and very cheap, like they've got Black Klansman playing right now. And then Christopher Robin, which I haven't seen, but it's a Disney movie, but it got kind of well reviewed for what it was. There's just a there's an interesting range of things that aren't just, you know, support the girls, but you have to be in a, a major city to find it, it, it's everywhere and it feels like indie distributors especially and i think a24 is maybe the prime model of this for having two pretty big word of mouth hits this summer are realizing that summer is a good time to target people who have already seen infinity war and might want to see something else you know speaking to that point and, and to yours joanna about like anecdotally you know people sort of talking about things it's like that the summer of 2018 bittersweetly will be the summer of movie pass you know because it was the last you know, sort of beautiful swan song of this insane idea that like was basically taking money from venture capitalists and giving it to the people, uh, which I, we should do more of, um, so they could go see movies. Um, and people did, you know, I've spoke to so many more people, uh, this summer who saw smaller stuff because they could just like swipe the thing or whatever, whatever the, however it worked. Um, I'm such an elitist that I, didn't, I never had it, but, um, you know, so I think that like that's another thing that like, um, contributed to this feeling, at least for me, um, that like the movies were this nice kind of communal, like watering hole this summer, you know, in a, in a, in a very fraught time. Um, there was a lot on offer to kind of, I don't know, keep us entertained. That's so smart. I didn't think about movie pass as well in that. I've been like so snide about movie pass because like I never used it. Not, not just because I'm an elitist because I actually don't go to that many press screenings, but just because like it always seemed like a crazy idea that was going to crash. But like somehow screw you. Yeah. And so everyone's like, Oh my God, screwed us over. I'm like, yeah, you dummies. But like what's <laughs> true is that like people took it. You're right, Richard. I didn't think about it. People did take advantage. And it probably does have to do with why so many people saw like these smaller films and, and like, uh, can we figure out a more sustainable way to make that true? Because it's just, it was great to hear people gushing about documentaries in the summer. Like, it's so great. So, I don't know. Uh, or Mamma Mia. Well, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez becomes president of the United States, which I believe is the position she's running for, she's going to make movies free for everyone. So we're going to... Yeah, I, I heard her platform was a movie pass in every pot, right? That's exactly right. The, the pamphlet I was handed out in the town square, at least, told, told me that. <laughs> so I went through the the box office mojo, and I just kind of wanted to like bring some things to your attention. Uh, the first thing that stood out to me is that Solo, uh, that movie that we that came out and then everyone immediately forgot and wrote off as a horrible flop. Uh, it's made two hundred and thirteen million dollars domestic. Uh, it's made more than Ant Man and the Wasp and Mission Impossible Fallout thus far, though Mission Impossible will probably cross it at some point. Um, I mean, it didn't. It, it made less than that overseas, which is a disaster for an expensive Star Wars movie. But and then to be right off Solo too early is something that everyone hated when apparently a bunch of people saw it. I was looking at that myself. I don't know why last night, Katie. And I, isn't it like like number six of the top it 10? is number six yeah. yeah right behind deadpool 2 i mean it's a hundred million dollars behind deadpool 2 so i'd say deadpool one out yeah but like deadpool 2 is being lauded as this like um, uh, you know obviously we take budgets into consideration but like deadpool 2 has been is been lauded as this like another massive success for deadpool and like solo is this huge flop and then i looked at the rankings i was like wait a minute um 
you know, I think I think you have to say Solo is uh, underperformed for a Star Wars movie or for a big budget movie. But like, what's true about what was always true about Star Wars movies is if you were going to make them every year, or in the case of Solo, which came out like what five months after the Last Jedi. Um, it's just got to be diminishing returns because it's not as special. I think what I said to uh, some like hardcore Star Wars film writer geeks at the solo premiere party was I, I came up with the campaign slogan, make Star Wars rare again. Like just, just make it every and every other year event. And if you make it in every other year event, we'll be super excited every time it happens, you know? So it does seem like they've learned that like the next one isn't coming until next Christmas. I can't remember. It's going to be a while before we have another star Wars. Yeah. That was always the plan. I just, I think they could have, they could have pushed solo to this Christmas and like, yeah, there would have been a lot of snide, like, oh, what's going on with, you know, Solo? What's the production problem? But like, well, they had already fired the directors. Everyone I knew know. it was a problem. But like, you know, then at least we would have had some space between the last Jedi brouhaha and like, you know, the next installment. I, I mean, I, I think Solo was super uneven. So no matter when it came out, it was going to like not. I think probably not be a huge hit, but like um, it could have had a bit more of a chance with some more space between it. Yeah. I, I remember I saw solo um, at the Cannes film festival, which is this film festival in France, which is a part of Europe um, mm. that I have <laughs> gone, gone to. Um, and, 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 you know, they, they premiered the movie there, which, or sort of premiered it there. They, they screened it there, um, which everyone sort of saw as a show of strength. Um, and then there was this huge lavish party that I, well, probably the biggest party I've ever been to at Cannes, um, just in terms of square footage. I thought the movie was fun, but I ran into some other journalists, Rebecca, our own Rebecca Keegan included, who had just come from the same screening and they were so down on it. And I, I was surprised and I continued to be surprised by how sort of negative people were about the movie. The movie has its supporters, our Vanity Fair's own Radhika Jones, our, our, you know, uh, Capo de Tutti. Uh, she loves the movie and thinks it's the best since the original trilogy. And, um, you know, but I, I do think, Katie, back to your original point that like, the metrics for what is a success are so different. They're so relative depending on like where the movie's coming from, what sort of narrative it's a part of. And like, yes, it's the, 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 the foreign box office for solo was not good, but it wasn't like a complete disaster. It wasn't like cutthroat Island and people are talking about it like it was. Yeah. And I think within the context of star Wars, it feels that way because even rogue one, which is a bummer spinoff starring no characters you've ever heard of uh, who all die at the end uh, made more money than that. Um, the, you know, this is the chance to bring back Han Solo and they kind of learned not to. But rogue one was at the beginning of this Lucasfilm revival. It was only the second film and everyone like liked the force awakens. So it was like coming off of that momentum, you know, and it was a year later and stuff like that. Whereas like the last Jedi hit, it was super divisive. And then like, Nobody, a lot of people didn't want the solo movie to begin with because, um, you know, like, w- why mess with, like, such a beloved character and then, like, all the behind the he- scenes stuff? I mean, it was just a recipe for, like, you know, I, I was actually surprised that it, it, didn't get more crucified and uh, not because it deserved it, but just because of the circumstances, you know, but what was it? I mean, I know you're going to probably go through a few more things that I don't mean to steal your thunder, but I think no, keep going. One of the things that, uh, that astonished me looking at the, box office rankings last night was why was I looking at them? I don't know why. Um, was that Disney has five right out of the top 10. They have the top three. They've got black Panther, Infinity War, Incredibles two solo and Ant-Man the Wasp. And then I was like, okay. And then if they get the merger with Fox, which it will go through, then they would have Deadpool too. So they would have six. And I'm just sort of like, who's left. And, and like the astonishing staying power of the a quiet place. Okay. Well, Joanna, I just want to correct you for a second. Uh, you said Black Panther and Solo. Black Panther is a Marvel Studios film, and Solo is Lucasfilm, and, and there's no way that one company could own. And Incredibles is Pixar, right? So yeah, so there's so it's it's, it's separate studios. There's no way that one company could be all that. That would be insane. Yeah, we live in a country with no monopolies. <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, it, watching every every summer, it starts to feel like this is the end of the studio system because it's just going to be Disney left and then like Netflix at home to, to distract us. Was it you, Katie, who pointed out a while back that that um in, in the, the book version of Cloud Atlas that people refer to movies as Disney's? Yes. And movie theaters are Disney-ariums. I yeah, think about well, that quote constantly. We're about five years from that, I think. 
Yeah. Um, well, hang on. I wanted to to talk about a success story that was not a Disney film. I don't think. Let me look closely at it. Um, it is the number twenty three most profitable, most uh, highest grossing movie of the year. It is made more than Skyscraper and Pacific Rim Uprising and Tomb Raider. Uh, Book Club has made sixty eight million dollars. <laughs> Did you guys know that? No. Did you have any idea how huge Book Club is? Well, as as a as the writer and director of the film, I do get yeah. no, certain I'm, financial reports. Richard, you are so rich now. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. No. I think that's great because, you know, it's look, is it a Nancy Myers knockoff that does not live up to the 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 the, the filmmaker it's aping? Yes. But like it's fun and it's you know, counter programming, however you want to think about that kind of concept. Um it came out amidst a lot of you know, it came out amidst a lot of big blockbusters, uh, and then it held on for as long as it did and obviously fulfilled uh, 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 you know, sated a, a hunger and a need uh, that was not being addressed. Otherwise, um, I think you know is hopefully yet another. We keep these signals keep getting sent to studio people. Hopefully, it's this is another one. Well, so this this is an interesting thing that um, I've been hearing filmmakers say. So, uh, like Mission Impossible Fallout, which is actually maybe my exception to like all these blockbusters are fine, and I'm like, but Mission Impossible Fallout is amazing. Um, but I'm a huge Mission Impossible fan and I'm a huge Christopher McQuarrie fan. Um, and something that I heard Christopher McQuarrie talk a lot about when he's talked about the film is how much the studio wants him to appeal to the young male demographic. And he's like, guess what? We're not going to get them. So I'd prefer to look. Oh, because elsewhere. they don't go to theaters at they all. They don't go to movie theaters. And so he's, ah. like, he's like, guess what? I mean, we'll get them eventually when they all become old men like Tom Cruise. But like, you know, right now we're not going to get <laughs> no, them. Tom Cruise doesn't age, Joanna. <laughs> right. You're he's right. He's still 30. He's ageless. Um, I mean, I did see him run all through London without like getting out of breath. So it was amazing. But, um, the, uh, so he's like, I'd rather appeal to others. So like, you know, whenever he would test something and it would like appeal, well, appeal to young men, but the alternate cut would appeal to women. He, he took the one that appealed to women. And so like he was sort of angling for these other demographics. Cause he's just like young men. I, I don't want to chase that. And I, another um, director, I was talking to another director when I was recently in Los Angeles and who will remain unnamed for right now. And he said that the studio came to him and asked him how he could make the movie appeal to 18 year old males. And he said, counterpoint, <laughs> how cheap does this movie have to be where you don't ever ask me that question again? <laughs> And so, like, that's the thing is, like, a few of these very interesting filmmakers are like, you know what? The young male demographic, we lost it to, like, video games or whatever. We don't care about getting it back because it's not the movie. They're not the stories we want to tell. And, like, and so if we do continue to see stuff like Mamma Mia, which is, like, an incredibly lucrative, uh, you know, franchise, if you can call it $111 million. You can call two films a franchise. Like, if we if we keep seeing stuff like that or A Quiet Place, which I don't think is pitch to you know young men at all that's like a that's a family horror film you know like i i i think that that might be the the future for uh, you know a, a blockbuster weary country i don't know it's just i also wonder you know talking about star wars and everything and recently um kelly marie tran who was in the, the last jedi and was basically bullied off the internet uh, after that movie was released, she wrote an article, I think for the New York Times, an op-ed, talking about her experience with that and dealing with this really, really toxic fan community, which is largely made up of younger men. I mean, I think it's probably with Star Wars, it's maybe more middle-aged men. But like, even if that doesn't necessarily immediately affect the bottom line, you wonder if like eventually studios are going to be like, you know, fuck those guys. Like I'm let's not court them. Let's make book club and have it make $68 million. And for an audience that like does not, you know, and, and, and maybe they should, but like at the current moment does not feel entitled to this stuff, does not feel that they are owed this stuff, you know, that they're actually eager. There's a kind of active participation in this. Or even like with crazy rich Asians, like the way that you saw people like buying out theaters to be able to go see crazy rich Asians, because that level of representation meant so much to them. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, and I don't think that like, you know, I, I think obviously like when a first thing like that pops, it's like a really big deal. And obviously, you know, fatigue eventually sets in with anything. But like, I think that there have been myriad examples, like you said, Katie Crazy Rotations and Book Club, like this year and other years recently that like, if you serve an underserved audience, they're gonna like, Re respond, you know, um, because nerdy white guys who have now had a decade plus ish of 
everything they've ever wanted made for them and just, you know, produced over and over and over and over and given to them, like, you know, that's a pretty sated passive audience at this point. Like, maybe the rest of us should should be considered. And I think maybe that's slowly happening. I don't know. So do you want to go back to what Christopher McQuarrie said? Is that why he put Vanessa Kirby in that dressing gown when she's in that scene where she changes out of her amazing dress and then puts on this like like cape kind of thing? Because I have not stopped thinking about that. And I, I think I feel like it was targeted at me. It was just for you. He tested you. a bikini and <laughs> then they were like, no, it's the dressing gown. Um, yeah, I want sequins, please. I mean, a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, the Ilsa Faust character, like making sure that if you if you watch all the Mission Impossible movies, uh, and and I did quite recently, you're like, oh, I mean, Ghost Protocol is my favorite. That's number number four. I was like, oh, Ghost Protocol is where they really figured out how to make a Mission Impossible movie that respects women. And that's when Christian McQuarrie came on as a writer. And so like, you know, a lot of credit to Brad Bird who directed that, but like, that's when McQuarrie came on and he's just like, he, he has a rule where he never damsels women in his movies and uh, all that stuff. It's really, it's really cool. That's why I love the, the Mission Impossible franchise, but, uh, or one of the many reasons why, but like, it's, I, I don't know. It's, it's really interesting because Another reason, and I think this is still on point and not just me gushing about Mission Impossible, which I missed while I was gone. So this is my chance to, but, um, <laughs> the, another reason why the Mission Impossible franchise is so refreshing is there isn't that toxic fandom around it. It's a big blockbuster with like all these actions. And I was like pinioned to my seat with like astonishment and excitement over how much I was like getting out of Fallout. And then there was zero, as far as I saw, toxic fandom shit online to like then have to grapple with. And I'm like, this is how it should be we just go enjoy a movie at the movie theaters and then just all agree we had a fun time at the movies and not like be stuck in these endless terrible toxic debates so um you know i like i look forward to the next star wars movie i love star wars i you know like yes nerdy nerdy fan richard's right nerdy nerdy white guys nerdy fanboys have had like their fill for over a decade but that's also stuff that i like i do genuinely happen to like comic book films and star wars films and stuff like that and they never talk about it on the internet because the people who talk about them are monsters exactly but then like i don't want to talk about it that much so you know it's uh mission impossible something for everyone except you know you toxic fanboys stay away from my franchise yeah um to go back to talking about uh, audiences that aren't always represented in these summer blockbusters, I feel like we should talk about Sorry to Bother You, uh, which has made $16 million now. I have not seen it yet, so I don't want to talk too much about it. I think it's a fascinating movie for a lot of reasons, especially because its director, Boots Riley, has now been uh, talking about Black Landsman, the other um, kind of largely or like prominent movie by a prominent black filmmaker uh, that's been out this summer that's also been really successful. Um, do we feel like there's anything to learn from Sorry to Bother You other than you make a good movie and people want to talk about it and it makes money? I think th- I think that that is at root, you know, the what what it can credit its success to is that it's an interesting movie. It's a movie no one's seen before by any stretch of the imagination. It's a really weird movie. I think that something that some of the reviews have gotten at, both in, well, mostly in the positive, one negative from... Uh, a particular conservative critic who I will not uh, name for uh, because I'm associated with him in terms of New York Film Critics Circle, uh, but um, uh, Kyle Smith, whatever, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who just don't understand, like, or who, who recognize that the movie is 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 deeply anti-capitalist and very much pro-union and pro-pro-proletariat and labor and 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 I think that among other things has really struck a chord with people at this very moment. I mentioned Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. This this you know this kind of slight surge of democratic socialism uh, entering politics, the political conversation as uh, the midterm elections uh, approach. Um, that sorry to bother you. Kind of arrived at a perfect time for that. Um, and and I think Boots Riley has been very um, clear and and uh, con- you know consistent about the film's political messaging. And I, I think that that in addition to the sort of wonder of its design and this, you know, great central performance from Lakeith Stanfield, who's, you know, having a great couple of years. Um, I think that the political aspect of it is, is, is definitely a part of it. Yeah, Boots Riley has done an amazing, I've, I don't know if you guys follow Boots Riley on Twitter, but like there's never been a director that I've seen on Twitter that's been more active about like retweeting praise of his own movie. And I'm like, I'm not even saying that in a shitty way. Cause like, I love, sorry to bother you. I really like Boots Riley. Um, I've just been like, if you just read my Twitter feed alone, you would think that sorry to bother you was like the most and best important movie of the year. There's a lot of hometown pride there. Yes. A lot of Oakland, 
pride. Um, there, there is though something to be said. I have, I should have mentioned it when I mentioned eighth grade. It is another one of those smaller movies that like everyone has just been talking, everyone that I've talked to has talked about going to see. And like maybe the box office numbers reveal that that is a smaller group of people than I thought, but, um, it's made more than eighth grade. It's been open longer, but it made more. I, I saw it first at, at the San Francisco Film Festival here. And then I saw, and then I took friends again, like a, a couple times. I've actually seen it a couple times because it's, it's one of those movies like, uh, when The Sixth Sense opened, I went and saw The Sixth Sense like four times opening weekend because I kept taking people and being like, don't read anything. Just come with me and see it. And that's what I've been doing with Sorry to Bother You. I'm like, it takes a turn. Don't read about it. Just come with me and see it. And, um, it's so, it's so much better to go into that not knowing, like, uh, what happens in the back quarter of the movie. People um, don't know that Joanna drives a school bus around her neighborhood, just taking people to movies. It's yeah, really the nice. Pied Piper of Sorry to Bother You. I have a bullhorn. <laughs> Come with me if you want to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's really good. I'm going to steal that for the future. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, but, but Richard's right that there, like, there is a political urgency to this. And I think, I think, you know, you don't get Sorry to Bother You doing as well as it is doing this year without get out doing as well as it did last year. I think just like the comparisons are sort of inevitable. And I know a lot of people hate those comparisons. They're like, don't just compare two two movies. Cause they have like a predominantly black cast and like a political message. Like that's unfair. And I'm like, yeah, well, when we get more of those, then the comparisons won't be as cogent, but like, you know, there's a reason crazy rich Asians keeps getting compared to joylet club is like, because there's been two of them in 25 years, you know, like it's, um, I would like there to be more. I would like this to not be, feel like any kind of anomaly. Although the fact that it's out at the same time as black Klansmen and from what you're describing about the message of sorry to bother you being anti-capitalist, it sounds like a very different movie from Black Klansman has like a different focus and kind of different ideas of how society works. So those two next to each other alone could do a lot for that. Absolutely. What has Boots Riley been saying about Black Klansman? Oh, he wrote this uh, this open letter kind of to Spike Lee on Twitter about how he took the real story of what happened uh, with Ron Stallworth and adapted it to uh, make the movie more pro-police and kind of overlook... I'm going to hopefully not mingle it too much, but the the role that Ron Stallworth himself played in infiltrating the um, black student organization seen in the film and basically kind of painting a, a nicer picture of the police than Boots Riley thought the uh, history deserved. That sounds like something Boots Riley would do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's really it's a really interesting way to look at the movie. Well, I'll tell you, he's a persuasive guy. I, I saw the movie at Sundance and I was mixed on it. Um, and then I went to some weird house party toward the end of the festival and Boots Riley was there. And I just kind of like, we talked for a while. And by the end of the conversation, I was like, his movie is brilliant. <laughs> he is brilliant. Like, he's like a really like interesting person to talk to and, and, and really, uh, has such a firm handle on what, sorry to bother you, what his movie is, is doing. Um, and he makes a great case for it. And I, and I think that like, maybe that's why he's been so active on social media and, and stuff like that, because he really passionately, I think, um, that's a movie with a very distinct point of view. Can I talk about one more thing in terms of, um, getting people to theaters versus not, uh, this summer? And that would be this really, I think, unexpected phenomenon that happened this weekend where like, I expected Crazy Rotations to do well, which it did. I expected a lot of people to feel like a drive to go see it opening weekend to support it, which they did. Uh, what I did not expect is, uh, for Netflix to drop their own rom-com this weekend, To All the Boys I've Loved Before. I wanted before. to talk about Netflix. Yeah. We were on the same page. And, uh, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which I, I watched I watched both Crazy Rotations and To All the Boys I've Loved Before this weekend. I actually watched To All the Boys I've Loved Before multiple times this weekend, which I actually know a lot of people did. And I actually see a lot more conversation around that movie happening, at least on Twitter. Like, you know, all the, all the glossy magazines, including our own, have great coverage of Crazy Rotations. And I think To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which is based on a YA novel by Jenny Han, and it, uh, is getting compared, uh, like I said, like I mentioned before, with other comparisons, it's getting compared because it also has like an, an Asian lead. Um, uh, in this like rom-com situation uh, they're very different films this is much more teen focused but it's like it's a great like as someone who didn't drink the set it up Kool-Aid um, and as someone who has not been like that impressed with like Netflix will resurrect the rom-com I'm like okay but to all the boys I love before it's really good it's really good and uh, I've just seen it dominate the conversation on social media more than people talking about Crazy Rich Asians and there's something about 
obviously it being in the home and like the rewatchability of it, the ease of it, all of that, like I am defiantly resistant to Netflix taking over our, uh, the way in which we see movies. I think there should and could be room for both, but I can't, uh, ignore, I think what I've seen with, you know, crazy rotations, which had all this hoopla, all this buildup. And, you know, I, we'll never know because Netflix doesn't release as metrics, but like, I imagine maybe as many people, if not more, saw to all the boys I love before. It's hard for me to know because my my Twitter feed is so skewed. But like, I don't know. It seems like it's, that's possible. What do you guys think? Well, this feels to me like the summer that Netflix like figured out how to be part of the cultural conversation. Because I feel like what we've said about it so many times is like, you know, they drop a whole season of House of Cards and nobody knows how to talk about it. And then no one knows what's coming. But like, it feels like you're right. Everyone's been talking about all the boys I love before. Everyone was talking about set it up for a while. Like everyone was talking about Glow season two in a way that it felt like hadn't happened before. And we were saying earlier in the episode that like, they've got Outlaw King. They're kind of entering the award season even more intensely than they have been before like this is possibly all the lead up to that and i don't really know what changed for them other than that like people like their movies now and usually they like like one netflix movie a year if that i have a suspicion netflix has been hiring up all the publicists in town i don't know like you guys get these emails yeah well they hired the award season strategist um but but like would I, those I, be the people who worked on all the boys I Live before no wait wait I mean, I know, I know who worked on To All the Boys I Lived Before, and they're relatively new, uh, to Netflix. Um, but it's not just that. It's also like hiring people like, um, I don't think I'm blowing up a spot to say this, like Jarrett Weisselman of BuzzFeed, who is like so good at Twitter, is now running these various Netflix Twitter accounts in a really fun, lively, like funny way, in a way that like spreads the conversation about these movies, uh, or these seasons of television around Twitter. Like that's something Jarrett has always been really good at doing. And he did it sort of from the journalist side before. And now Netflix is like that we want that. And they're so wise to do it because I, I, you know, like he doesn't pay me. I, I, you know, who cares if, if I say this, but like, I think it's, I think it's true. Like, I think that, that weaponizing people who are really good at Twitter, um, is a really smart thing that they've done. So, do you guys want a little inside baseball? Uh, well, we're, we're already kind of down that path anyway. But um, speaking of going to parties, I went. I was in LA before Sundance in January, and I got invited to a, someone's apartment in West Hollywood, uh, and it was a sort of like small, very um, post dinner party drinks thing for the uh, the Netflix social team. So Jarrett was there, Alex Simons was there, Ray Voda, uh, Lila Brilson, all these people. And they're, they're like a really intense group of people and they're really dynamic and they know exactly what they're doing. Netflix has found this kind of crack team, uh, and the way that they disseminated, um, to all the boys of love before or set it up or whatever has been pretty brilliant. But I think another thing, you know, talking about what, what Netflix figured out exactly relates to the book club conversation about like, I think what Netflix figured out is like, hey, no one else is doing these movies uh, at this point. I mean, with minor exception, obviously. Uh, so, like, people are starved for this, and they will lap it up. I don't think Set It Up is that good. I frankly don't think that To All the Boys I've Loved Before is that good. But, like, people are hungry for it, and, they, and, they're, and they're coming to it in droves. And um, hopefully that sets a precedent, uh, though I worry that, like, the bar should still be for high quality. You know, it shouldn't just be, like slop that people were hungry for. Well, I can't get over the genius of having to all the boys I love before the same re- weekend as Crazy Rich Asians because how many times have you gotten back from a movie? Like, I got back from Mission Impossible uh, Fallout and was like, oh my god, I want to watch Ghost Protocol again and like go dig up my Blu-ray and you get home from a movie that you've enjoyed and being like, what else can I find that's like this? Oh, Netflix has this new thing that I haven't seen before. Um, it's it's following the pattern of thought and it doesn't compete with the movie that's in theaters. It kind of works in partnership with it and I don't know how Warner Brothers feels about them doing that, but it seems like it worked out well for for everybody. I think you're right, Richard, that like my bar is really low uh, for like what can like constitutes a good Netflix movie. Like I think you liked um, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society film better than I did. But like, there is something to be said about like watching this movie at home versus watching the theater. And you're like, Oh, well, I mean, 
it's better than anything I ever watched in ABC Family when ABC Family was doing these movies all the time. You know what I mean? Like it's it's somewhere between something I would see in a theater. I'm like, why did I go to the theater for this? And something that I like watch on TV and I'm like, this is utter crap. I'm like, well, there's something like slightly elevated here. Joanna, you you I have to you swallowed the title there. Say it proudly. The Guernsey Literary <laughs> Potato Peel Pie Society. Here's here's the background on that. I was a bookseller when that book came out. So I had to say that title so many times when I was a bookseller because that was a huge bestseller when it came out. And I was like, this fucking Guernsey book. Like and I actually kind of like the book because it's um it's epistolary, like it's you know, it's all in letters and there's something kind of like fun and interesting about that. And then I just feel like I, I don't know, I was reading your tweets about it, Richard, and I agree with like some things we can agree on the, you know on the dynamism of some people who are involved in the project. But like, other than that, it just sort of sat there for me. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really, I don't really get the Guernsey love uh, this time around, but that's okay. Yeah. When you told me that Matthew Good was in that being charming, Richard, I uh, immediately put it on the top of my imaginary Netflix queue and I, it hadn't been on my radar. So like, that's a Netflix movie that like kind of missed me, but uh, with, with people like you, it catches up to me anyway. I'm wary of the whole Netflix project and, and whatever it means for entertainment. But like, I guess, you know, this summer in particular, it has been a nice refuge. Like, uh, the reason I watched the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society was because I had just massively binged Schitt's Creek, which is, despite its awful title, a really lovely show. Uh, and I was just kind of wanting more of that, like, warm vibe. And so I turned, turned that on. And it was just like, I was like grateful to Netflix for having that on the service. Like, like I was grateful for it for having, uh, set it up on and, you know, and, and whatever else. Um, not the kissing booth, a very popular teen romantic comedy that is actually very bad, um, and problematic. But, you know, I think that like, if Netflix could settle into being, like you said, Joanna, like the kind of like ABC family, like relaxing and comforting kind of thing, rather than trying to do, you know, $80 million awful Will Smith movies about like demons and fairies or whatever that movie was bright was about. I think that's a good, that's a good wheelhouse to be in. Or Chris Pine Scottish movies. But like, that's the thing is like Netflix wants it all. Like they want to be your, you know, and like what Katie was saying, like when you come from crazy rich Asians and you want to watch to all the boys I've loved before, because that's like the, what, what the algorithm of your brain suggests next. Like, and that's exactly what you're describing, Richard. You're like, uh, you watch this Creek and then Netflix is like, Hey, how about Guernsey? You know, like, um, like if that algorithm way that we, that we watch things now, the binge way that we watch things now, um, like that, that is something that I think Netflix, uh, can serve for better or for worse. But we will find out, I guess, this year, as we do every year, how well that will translate to award season because, uh, you know, we, we, Mudbound was a film that we talked a lot about in terms of Netflix's progress in award season last year. But like, you know, I, you guys have been, this has been like several years now where you guys have gone to TIFF, seen a, seen a Netflix movie, and then we talk about whether or not it's going to actually go the distance. So I'll be really curious. Well, and you don't make gifts of Roma or Outlaw King the way that you do of Set It Up. Like it, the, the, that kind of social media power that we're talking about isn't totally going to work for, you know, more somber, uh, thoughtful movies, which, you know, we can all be grateful that Netflix gives them a platform and makes it available to everybody, but it, it's hard for them to take off the way that Netflix seems to have mastered this summer. Are you saying you're not seeing a healthy future, Katie, for um, 22 July memes? <laughs> I wanted to double check that that was a Netflix movie before I brought that one up. It's the ultimate Netflix movie that uh, I don't think anyone's going to have like really fun gifts of. <laughs> I certainly hope but We'll not. see it at TIFF and see how it goes. We will see it at TIFF, yeah. Uh, is there any other closing thoughts you guys have on, uh, on what we learned on our summer vacations or that we're going to take with us into the fall? I want to poll you both. Um, what was what was the highlight, the single highlight for each of you? Like the the movie that really did it for you in theaters or on Netflix or wherever. I mean, I I think we all agree on Fallout, so maybe I should uh, go back and shout out to Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, which I just felt like lifted out of my chair by, like particularly in the Dancing Queen number on the boats, which we've talked about as the you know the little the little ships of Dunkirk. Of, uh, uh, I cried. I cried <laughs> it's at that moment. So oh my god, great. The, you guys, the little ships of Dunkirk. I'm, I'm sorry, I missed you <laughs> saying that before. That's brilliant. Oh my god, I'm so glad I saw it in theaters. I, I have since rewatched uh, the first Mamma Mia on Netflix, which is now off of Netflix, which breaks my heart. Uh, being the experience of being in the theater and watching that happen and like with a bunch of other delighted uh women let's be honest uh was really fun uh yeah i'm, I'm gonna stick with fallout i i also saw mommy here we go again twice in theaters because i saw it a second time because i want to take my sister but like yeah there there was just something about fallout that like feels and and the other thing is 
I've I've been talking to a few filmmakers, and every time you bring out Chris McQuarrie and what he does, and if you haven't yet, li- please listen to like all the extended interviews that he has given uh, the Empire Magazine podcast. There's like I think five hours of interviews with Chris McQuarrie about this film. It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating the way he puts together a movie. It's unlike anyone else uh, in that it is like crazy. Uh, he just like writes scenes the night before sometimes, or he's like. You know, he sends his location scouts out and he's like, find me a beautiful place and I'll figure out what we're going to do there. Like, it's a, it's a crazy way to make a movie, but like, against all odds, it, it has worked in the last two films. But when you talk to filmmakers in Hollywood and you bring up the name Chris McQuarrie, their eyes light up and they're like, yeah, man, that guy's doing it. You know, and it's sort of like, so he might, he might either be a singularly talented person or represent some kind of future that a lot of other filmmakers are want to going to try to aspire to more practical effects. But to do all that, you need an absolutely, you need a leading man with a death wish like Tom Cruise, who wants to like fly his own helicopters and do his own alien jumps. So I don't know. We'll Thank God he's cloned himself, so we'll never have to lose him. <laughs> yeah, you guys have, have, have. I mean, I, I, I loved Fallout, and I loved Mamma Mia too. So those were probably my highlights of the summer. But I'll, I'll point out a smaller moment. Uh, I went to go see a screening of a movie that I don't think anyone saw called The Darkest Minds, which was a YA adaptation uh, starring Amanda Stenberg, who is about to have a huge fall. Uh, she's in Anama Asante movie. She's in the lead in Hate You Give. 2018 is just getting started for her. Uh, but also in the movie is Harris Dickinson, who was uh, the lead in Beach Rats last year. Uh, I think it was last year, which was an indie movie that, you know, got a lot of praise, but like not, not, not a ton of people saw. But anyway, it was fun to go to an afternoon screening of this movie. They, it was press. Some invited people. They invited some teens uh, because it's a teen movie. And listening to this group of teenage girls fall in love with Harris Dickinson <laughs> over the course of the movie. Which was, you had already done. I remember you talking about I him last year. Which I had already done in his dark gay indie. This, this was for everyone else. <laughs> it was just like pure summer funny, like just what it, what it should have been. Uh, and, and, you know, one of many reasons why we go to the movies. Well, that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Next week, we're going to look ahead to the fall festivals. We're going to get ready to ship Richard off to Telluride and uh, look at what's to come there. So, so many more movies to talk about, which is always exciting. Uh, you can find all of us at VanityFair.com, which is where you can find, I think, Richard's uh, aforementioned recap of all the movies he liked this summer. Um, you can find all of us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. And Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe this episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best description of Joanna Robinson's return to Little Gold Men goes to Katie Rich. So the scene is a comeback of sorts. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.